At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams of 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Straight Talk with Dana Mark. Man, it is hot outside. Well, it's not that bad this week, man. You know, a couple of days ago, we had a tornado touched down in, in Jersey. But right now, it's like 84 degrees up here. It feels a little bit like 86. But um, in most recent news, man, a Florida man, Paul Hoskins, gets eight months in prison. He's the first January 6th defendant sentenced on a felony charge. All right? Now, Florida man became the first felon sentenced Monday for his role in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, receiving eight months in prison, being ordered to pay $2,000 in restitution for a portion of the damage to the building. Hostins, who is 38 years old, Tampa, Florida, faced sentencing guidelines of 15 to 21 months in prison after pleading guilty to obstruction of an official proceeding for interrupting Congress's counting of electoral college votes. He spent 15 minutes in the Senate chamber holding a flag supporting former President Donald Trump and taking pictures. District Judge Randolph Moss called literally waving the flag for Trump an unmistakable sign of loyalty to a single person rather than the country and democracy. Now, although Mr. Hoskins was, was only one member of a larger mob, he actively and intentionally participated in an event that threatened not only the security of the Capitol, but democracy itself, Moss said. That is chilling for many reasons. Now, Hoskins had asked Moss for no prison time. (laughs) Yeah, right. Hoskins said he had no plans to enter the Capitol when he traveled to Washington to attend Trump's rally early in the day. But he got swept up in the march along Pennsylvania Avenue. Once inside the Capitol, he said he apologized to police officers for the trouble and he offered medical care to an injured rioter. I can say without a shadow of a doubt that I'm truly remorseful and regretful for my actions in Washington. Hodgkins told the court. This was a foolish decision on my part, and I take full responsibility for it. Now, Moss said he grappled with Senator Hoskins for his personal behavior rather than the more violent or destructive rioters around him. But Moss also called the riot more than a First Amendment protest because it forced the evacuation of the House and Senate chambers under threats against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Mike Pence. 
He understood what he was doing, Ma said. He was one of the small number of people who made their way to the Senate floor. Now, Ma said he weighed the seriousness of the charge among extremely damaging events that day against Hodgkin's individual behavior. Hodgkins had no criminal background. He didn't engage in violence or destroy property. And he was among the first to offer to plead guilty after cooperating with investigators. Hodgkins also said he voluntarily performed 100 hours of community service at an animal shelter after he was arrested. Essex said ass was scared to go to prison. It's essential to send a message that this type of conduct is utterly unacceptable and that grave damage was done to our country that day, Moss said. At the same time, I do not believe that Mr. Hoskins, other than having made some very bad decisions that day and done some really bad things that day that did some real damage to the country, that he is a threat or that he is inherently an evil person. Now, D.C. judges imposed sentences shorter than guidelines in 38.9% of cases in 2020, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Mona Setke, an assistant U.S. attorney, had recommended an 18-month sentence to promote respect for the law and to deter a future riot at the Capitol. The details of that day were quite harrowing, Setke said. He was part of that mob. Setke acknowledged that Hoskins wasn't violent or destructive himself, but he witnessed officers being injured and rioters spraying chemicals. She said he came ready for conflict with goggles and gloves and benefited from the violence of others. He was among about 50 people who made it into the Senate chamber, she said. At its core, this was a grave danger to our democracy, psychiatric. January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism. Patrick LeDuc, a defense lawyer for Hoskins, disputed calling the riot domestic terrorism and said it was a protest that led to a riot. But Moss said rioters interrupted one of the most solemn functions of democracy, counting votes for the peaceful transfer of power. That is not an exercise of First Amendment rights by any measure, Moss said. Now, Hoskins is among the first dozen defendants to reach plea bargains with prosecutors, four for felonies and eight for misdemeanors. Two defendants with misdemeanors have been sentenced, one to six months behind bars, and one to three years of probation. At least 535 people were charged in the first six months after the attack, with 165 accused of assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers, according to the Justice Department. More than 50 people are charged with using a deadly or dangerous weapon or causing serious bodily injury to an officer, the department said. Now, about 140 police officers were injured during the melee that temporarily halted Congress counting electoral college votes. The disruption led to charges of obstruction of an official proceeding, which carries a 20-year maximum sentence. Now, dozens of conspiracy charges were based on planning for the attack through encrypted messages, military-style training, and wearing helmets and reinforced vests. Hoskins told investigators that while walking through the Capitol, he saw other people breaking windows and engaging in a knife fight, and others who were injured, but that he didn't participate in that conduct according to charging documents. Our position is that his role will be defined as minimal, LeDuc said. If you participated in the insurrection on January the 6th, you need to get that same type of sentencing that folks get when they get caught with crack cocaine, when they get caught when they uh, assault someone, you just need to go ahead. You did the crime. Now, who cares if you did that? 
community service at an animal shelter. That sounds all nice and everything because you realize somewhere along the line that you effed up. And the sentencing needs to be harsher because you need to send a message that this type of silliness, absence of thought, or whatever you want to call it, should not be tolerated on American soil. And short of execution, you know, you deserve lengthy sentences. You don't get to say, oh, I made a mistake. You'll be mistaken for someone with some sense when you're serving that time. That's just my thought on it. But anyway... It's the Six Man Dean Geronimo. I'm in the studio from NJ to NC with my right hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Hello, Mark, you there? It looks like he hadn't gotten to the stage just yet. So, I found something, though, y'all. And this is in stuff that. For us in the United States, it's one of those things where, you know what, you can't really believe. It's one of those, I can't believe they wrote this. But in a series of unfortunate events, a groom married the sister of his bride after she collapsed and died earlier in the wedding ceremony. Now, the incident happened in Utah, Pradesh, India, when a woman named Sarabi and a man named Mangesh Kumar with time to not in a Hindu ceremony on May 27th, reported by the Times of India. Now, during the Jamala, the exchange of garlands by the bride and groom in an Indian wedding, Sarabi collapsed, and the doctor was called to treat her after she suffered a heart attack. After the doctor pronounced the bride dead, the families of the bride and groom agreed the bride's younger sister, Nisha, will wed the groom. Now, in India... The majority of marriages are arranged, probably about an estimated 90%. Narada Patel, founder of South Asian matchmaking site Single Tushadi, said it's likely the families arranged for the sister to marry the groom because they wanted to keep it in the family. Patel said her mother was in a similar situation when her aunt died in childbirth, and it was the idea for her mother to marry her brother-in-law. So much vetting goes into matching families and marriages, and it's natural for the families to want to stay together, Patel said. Her mother was unmarried and young, but her parents accepted her denial of the idea. In the case of the Utah Pratesh wedding, the families decided to go ahead with the ceremony while Sarabi's body actually laid in another room. It was a bizarre situation as the wedding of my younger sister took place while the dead body of my other sister was lying in another room. Sarab. Sarab who is Sarabi's brother, told the Times of India. You know, we have never witnessed such mixed emotions, Sarabi's uncle, Ajab Singh, told News 18. The grief over her death and the happiness of the wedding has yet to sink in. Boy, that's that's like flipping a switch real quick. Well, she's dead. You know what? Your turn. Next up. I don't know how that works. We wouldn't do too well over here in the United States. That would end up in a a Royal Rumble or something like that, I guess. But, uh, hey, Mark, you there yet, brother? He hadn't made it onto the stage yet. So what we're going to do is we're going to move into one more article I found, man. And it says, uh, Biden walks back, claim that Facebook is killing people. 
Now, in an about face on his own condemnation of social media misinformation about COVID-19, President Biden on Monday said Facebook isn't killing people by hosting false claims. Biden softened his stance after company executives pushed back on his Friday statement that Facebook is responsible for deaths caused by anti-vaccine sentiment. Asked by a reporter on COVID misinformation, what is your message to platforms like Facebook? Biden lashed out Friday. They're killing people, Biden responded. The only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated, and they're killing people. But asked about those comments on Monday, he instead told reporters that he had just read an article claiming that most COVID-19 misinformation comes from 12 people, apparently referring to a report by the Center for Countering Digital Hate that identified Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as the most famous member of the disinformation dozen. I mean, precisely what I said, Biden said Monday, before contradicting his prior remark, holding Facebook responsible for deaths. I just read that on Facebook, it was pointed out to Facebook of all the misinformation. 60% of the misinformation came from 12 individuals. That's what the article said, Biden said. Facebook isn't killing people. These 12 people who are out there giving misinformation, anyone listening to it is getting hurt, is killing people. Bad information. Then Biden added, my hope is that Facebook, instead of taking it personally, that somehow, I'm saying Facebook is killing people, as they would do something about the misinformation, the outrageous informant, misinformation about the vaccine. That's what I meant. Biden also touted the stock market successful year, despite the fact that on Monday morning, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell by about 900 points amid fear that vaccines may not head off the more contagious Delta variant of COVID-19 that is tearing through the UK and largely unvaccinated areas of Missouri and Kansas. Now Biden's dust-up with Facebook came as the White House pressed social media companies to do more than censor anti-vaccine posts. More than 68% of U.S. adults have had at least one COVID-19 dose and dramatically lowering infections in most parts of the country for some reason have notably lower vaccination rates. So, you know what? Get the vaccine, y'all, because it um, looks like the Delta variant is attacking the folks that have actually not been vaccinated. So I'm going to try this one more time. Mark Lee, are you in the house, my brother? I'm in the house. I was actually, you know, it happens. It helps <laughs> or it hurts when you are multitasking. And it wasn't even the live stream multitasking, but as I was in the call and involved with you, I had a call from... WCOM, the radio station I'm involved with, and the current DJ on the air was like, my music isn't playing. Why isn't my music playing? And I'm going like, is the power on? And they're like, I think it is. And apparently the power is on. But I referred them to the engineer, and hopefully the engineer will help them fix their problem because they were calling me going like, Mark, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm here, and I'm doing my show. I don't know what's going on. you got to tell me what's going on. So we were having right. a going-on moment and all of that. So okay. we were trying to figure out what was going on. But like I said, I am in the process of texting them, and hopefully they will solve the problem. Because, you know, that's what happens when you create what amounts to a mini-media empire. So, you know, between you and me working together, we're trying to create a mini-media empire. So I've got radio, I've got live streams, I've got podcasting, and I know you've got a variety of things helping us on our end. So we're just trying to create a mini-media empire so that eventually they can say the name Dean Geronimo and Mark Lee and speak it in the same sentence as uh, Ted Koppel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that'll be cool, you know what I mean? And, and 
That'll be awesome, man. It, how's the weather that down? That would be rainy. How is the weather there? Because it has been rainy as all get out over here. <laughs> well, you know what? We had the rain this weekend, and actually, I was leaving a function, and it was like the gates of, of uh, ocean opened up, and it was just coming down. Come to find out, we probably were riding through what was then um, reported the next day as a tornado having touched down, not too far from where the main, you know, the, the highway is. So, luckily we made it home, you know what I mean? But, I was like, dang, we, well, we missed that, you know, or we probably drove through it. And, um, wow. you know, luckily, by the grace of God, that nobody was hurt. And even with the tornado touching down, it didn't hit anyone's houses couple of cars got jacked up where it did touch down but you know fallen trees and beat up cars and houses were basically spared so that's always a good thing it's a bad thing but it's a good thing as well you know you can't stop mother nature but at least there were no houses or people that were injured you know a car you can get another one of those so you know, I saw this hilarious story. I think you'll get a kick out of it. I heard some of your news stories, but I think you'll get a kick out of this. You know, I've been following news, following YouTube, and things of that nature. And you need to check this out. There was a woman recently, I think it was a week or two ago, but uh, she took the law in her own hand. I know you, you as somebody in criminal justice would argue people not to do this on a regular basis, but apparently some young thug sold her Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, so using yeah. social media, she tracked the person down and tracked him down to a barbershop. So I'm sure you've seen the video and heard the story. I posted but it. down to a barbershop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, 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 of she ran up on him, man. Like, that's Detroit, man. That's a Detroit girl. She wasn't playing, you know what I mean? She was not playing, and she dragged the brother. I mean, she didn't just wait for the cops. She dragged the brother away from the thing. His homeboy decided he was going to get some twists. And I know whether it's a woman or a male, twists do not take a short amount of time. So he was getting his hairs all twisted and everything, and she grabbed him, raised in them twists, and dragged the brother. I saw the video, and I'm going like, homeboy, I mean, I you work in the system. How you will explain that in the system while you waiting for your court date? Because you know it's all over the video, it's, including it's all the in prison the, it's internet. It's all in the news. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's all in the news, bruh. Like, on that one right there, shout out to Bianca Chambers, that's her name. And she, yeah. she said, yo, I'm going to get my car, and I'm snatching this dude, and I'm snatching him bald head and dragged him right on down the thing. So, you know what? Hey, man. <laughs> Sometimes you get what you what you get. That's what you get for stealing stuff. I guess you won't try that again. You know what I mean? No, but I'm, I want to know from the prison standpoint, how is he going to cope with that when he goes into the system? Because you know he got to go hey, into the system, even if he's got to wait for his trial and everything. <laughs> so I want to know how you going to explain that. I don't know how he's going to explain it, but I know from from the opposite end. It'll be like, hey, aren't you the dude that just got snatched out of the barbershop? I mean, we, you know, it's one of those things. We need to know now. We need to know, make sure we got the right person right here. Please tell me you're not that dude that stole a woman's car and she came and got it back. Is the top of your head hurt? You know, oh, we're going to make a joke out of it. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. We're going to have fun with that one. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have fun. <laughs> so I know I invited some people to. Oh, I was gonna say I invited you know some people. I was wondering if anybody was there. 
Yeah, we got somebody here, man. We're about to find out who this is right now. Let's see if we can bring them in. Thanks for calling Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. You are now on the line. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Good evening, Dean and Mark. It's uh, George from Boston. Hey, how you doing? Hey, George from Boston. What you got going on? Tell us a little bit about what's happening in your life and what's going on in your world. We love uh, hearing from our folks in the the Northeast. You know, Dean's up there in New Jersey, and I'm down here way in North Kakalaki, North Carolina, as we like to call it if we're going to be official. But definitely, I know Uh, that we reach out to (laughs) Oh, pretty good. Well, well, thank you both for for having me on. Um, I'll I'll go with your lead, Dean. I feel like I'm kind of in hostile territory here, but we'll we'll see what happens here. Um, First, I want to say that uh, January 6th was um, an American Reichstag moment. Um, And I think a broader theme that comes across from that is – information and misinformation. I think that carries over from the events of January January 6th to um, misinformation and information about COVID-19. And the question that you really got to ask is uh, who benefits from the negative value of, uh, of misinformation? I think that's a, that's a fascinating question. Um, you all call me today coming out of a U.S. court hearing uh, with a federal judge on the issue of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and it's an issue that I've, that I've been litigating, and I'd be happy to clear up any, any misinformation that might be out there. So what do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have about COVID-19? I know a lot of people are still wondering about whether they should get their vaccinations. I know that um, – I think Dean has told me that he is fully vaccinated. I think that I am uh, maybe a shot away from being fully, but I'm definitely in that category and everything. But definitely I was just wondering what are some of the misconceptions that you feel that people have about the vaccinations and just about – COVID in general, because we do know that we're in the middle of a pandemic, and some people are saying that there are spikes, and I know that even the school systems are wondering, because here in North Carolina, our year-round schools started today. I want to say that they do not have to have a mask on, but I need to double-check that, but I do know that they're also having free lunch for everybody as well, so that's some of the things that are going on, but my guess is that the traditional schools, which my nephews, I think, are part of, I don't think that they're year-round, if my memory is serving me correctly, but they will probably go in August, but I know definitely some of my friends will be going in August, and the year-round may be tests for the traditional, but I was just wondering what are some of the uh, misconceptions in your mind that exist out there? Well, well, firstly, I'm glad to hear that there's that we have the full spectrum of uh, unvaccinated, so I myself am unvaccinated, um, from unvaccinated to half-vaccinated to fully vaccinated on this call, so that's good, that's good to know. Um, the, 
the the first thing I guess I'd like to start with, I'm looking at five documents that I'm sitting with in front of me here. Now, but the first thing to start with is is uh, whether it's even appropriate to call the COVID-19 uh, mRNA and the denovirus vector injections vaccines uh, because, frankly, they don't meet the standards of what we would traditionally call a vaccine. It's a, it's a brand-new technology. Uh, it's using... Um, mRNA, which which uh, tells your body to create these um, spike proteins, which are um, frankly a toxin. Um, so they are the um, pathogenic uh, material that that causes the SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection. Um, and so I guess the place to start with be, would be to, to call them what they are, which is that they're not vaccines, that, they're, that they are uh, mRNA injections. And I've got the documents to, to back that up. So, um, so to start, um, we could look even as far back as uh, the early 2000s when the United States government uh, patented uh, the severe acute a respiratory syndrome, uh, and then continued on to uh, patent a um, human isolate of coronavirus built on top of the uh, on top of SARS. So that's that's when we talk about COVID-19, we're really talking about SARS-CoV-2, which is the second iteration of um, the uh, human occurring severe acute respiratory syndrome uh, coronavirus and that's this is patented technology that um, that was that is held by the US Department of Health and Human Services and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill so I mean if we if we're talking about information and misinformation that's the place to start um, you know there's a debate going on now about whether or not um, the coronavirus COVID-19 uh, came out of a lab in Wuhan or whether it was naturally occurring. And the, the reason why there's been so much tension around that is when you start to peel back the onion, uh, it gets rotten pretty quick, and it, and it goes all the way back to us. When you say us, you mean America? Because I know that even in the African-American community, there was some concern around early tests, meaning Tulsa, um, Oklahoma, and some of the other things. I mean, Tuskegee, Tuskegee and some of the early experiments that took place in that regard. And then, of course, I've even heard some people speculating that the uh, um, vaccine may actually be putting uh, nanotechnology in our body to actually track us and things of that nature. I'm not saying that I necessarily buy that, but I have heard that argument given and everything. But I was just wondering your thoughts about the relationship to some of the early tests like Tuskegee, which of course dealt with syphilis, and of course some of the other conversations that had taken place as well. Yes, of course. The Tuskegee experiment is a, is a stain on uh, United States history uh, for sure because as you know, uh, uh, the black Americans were targeted with syphilis, and then the government refused to uh, to provide a cure for them. So they were experiments put upon uh, without their informed consent. So it's a it's a heavy stain on our history, uh, to be sure. And 
um, I'm glad you glad you brought up the analogy because the same is happening on a uh, massive scale nationally and internationally. Um, the uh, mRNA injections, the univirus injections, are authorized only for emergency use. Um, and depending on where you are in the country, for example, if you're in Massachusetts, uh, Governor Baker um, pronounced an end to the uh, COVID-19 emergency uh, over a month ago. So the institutions that are out here um, trying to force uh, and coerce students to be vaccinated prior to returning to campus are um, are, are operating in a model that um, that fails to provide students with informed consent first of the fact that these injections are emergency use authorized, uh, and second, that there's no longer an emergency in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So in your mind, where would be the time that we should be doing these kind of things, or should we have never gotten involved in this in the first place? And I know that there's even been arguments around masks, and I know that we've even had this conversation here because I know that whether I've gone to stores or Dean has gone to stores, some people want to wear the mask, some people don't want to wear the mask. So whether we're talking about the vaccine, the other thing that I think that people oftentimes think about in terms of uh, the pandemic is freedom of speech when it comes to the mask. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that as well so first of all I, I have to caveat what I'm saying because uh, I'm actually a, a contract employee with the Executive Office of Health and Human Services here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts so what I say doesn't reflect doesn't necessarily reflect the views of uh, EOHHS or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts but to put things into perspective um, back in 1976 there was a um, a rampant flu called the ANJ-76 flu. It's called the New Jersey flu. And the government went through a similar process of attempting to max, mass vaccinate uh, individuals within the United States. And uh, what occurred as a consequence of that uh, was a, a spike in uh, the prevalence of Guillain-Barre syndrome something that occurred that occurred 10 times uh, the background rate of John Bray syndrome within the population and they attributed this to the mass vaccination policy and um, and in that year as a result of this um, as a result of the study that came out uh, concerning John Bray the uh, mass vaccination program was ended so to, to put that in contrast with with another paper uh, that was published by uh, a group called um, Wallace, Clement, and Akima. Uh, it was titled, The Safety of COVID-19 Vaccinations, We Should Rethink the Policy. Um, and, I'm, and it's escaping me which, which journal this was uh, published in, but I think it's the MDPI, uh, where the conclusion from studies of European and Israeli data of mass vaccination using mRNA injections was that for every three deaths that uh, vaccines prevent, uh, we would have to accept two deaths um, from from the mass vaccination. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but uh, if you 
do some basic math of uh, accepting that, let's just accept that the government figure of 600,000 deaths from COVID is accurate, and and to put that in context of um, that 95% of those deaths occurred with uh, two and a half comorbidities, um, we're talking about 30,000 deaths that resulted from COVID alone. And if you look at systems available, there's there's actually some debate uh, apparently at the CDC about whether or not um, what system to use as a system of record, whether that should be something called vSafe or the uh, vaccine adverse effect reporting system. But if you look at the vaccine adverse effect reporting system, uh, as of last month, uh, there were roughly 10,000 deaths reported to that system. Um, and there are some other, other studies uh, produced by Harvard Pilgrim Health at T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams of 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. That indicated that less than one percent of adverse effects from vaccines are ever reported in the system. So you could do some math and, and extrapolate um, how bad things might be. But um, when you look at history and you look at the types of regimes that engaged in censorship in the past, um, you know, and I'm thinking of uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Soviet Russia. Uh, and the communist Chinese regimes, uh, but they were never really on the right side of history when it came down to it. So, um, so again, I guess this kind of gets back to the question of, of information versus misinformation. And, you know, in, in the hearing that, um, that I had today, I found myself arguing with, uh, you know, with the senior judge without the defense really even even lifting a voice or saying a word in the hearing. Um, so I think I think we're living in very very perilous times, gentlemen. Um, particularly when you have uh, academic and scientific dissent being censored, you really got to think about um, you know what side of this do we want to be on? Do we want to be on the side of the censor or do we want to be on the side of scientific debate and discussion? And you had actually raised the whole question about what happened on January 6th and a couple of other things, but I was just wondering, in your perception, how do you feel media in general is doing, and in particular social media? Because I've heard some people talk about that they feel that uh, certain social media sites are 
part of the cancel cultural society, but then I've also heard some people that feel that their voices aren't necessarily being heard or heard accurately. And I could even make the argument that some people may say that from the left with some people's perceptions of critical race theory. But I just want to know your perception of how the media is doing both in the social media and also in the mainstream media. Well, me personally, I'm getting off of social media. Uh, I don't think it serves any purpose. I think that anybody that wants to have a conversation with me to, to find out how I'm doing, you know, my phone number is up on the Internet. They know how to get to my website. Um, you know, uh, but as far as what they're doing and, you know, on any given day, I feel like uh, people like uh, Zuckerberg are, are serving uh whichever master uh, suits them to keep their business alive. Uh, I don't think that uh, these people have uh, any sense of of morals or ethics. I think when you look at um, Zuckerberg flying the American flag on an electric surfboard on the 4th of July is is an affront to uh, our democracy. particularly when he's he's the biggest censor. I mean, I speaking speaking from experience, I was a, I experienced cancel culture um 7 years ago um before it was recognized as a thing. And I think more and more um I think it's acceptable it's becoming acceptable for people on the left to talk about cancel culture as a real thing um because it's starting to eat up uh, moderate leftists. Gotcha. So definitely, and it sounds like that's been going on for a while that a lot of people have been wondering about counterculture, and some people would argue that there was even some counterculture activities going on from the government side against the left. I could argue that maybe there was counterculture things taking place against the Black Panthers and the Weather Report, um, or the Weather Underground, I should say. But definitely I was just wondering, do you think that it is a thing that is on one side or the other, or is it my assessment, the more accurate one, which is something that is impacting both sides. And some people would say that those are opposite, that those are extremes, because, you know, some people would say that, like, say, the Proud Boys are the extreme on the right and BLM is the extreme on the left. I'm not saying that I necessarily buy that, but some people would make that argument, and some people would also say that we need to read their manifestos and what they are actually asking for. But I would also argue that there are probably just like any other organization, different factions. So I don't know that I'm going to buy just the quote-unquote official manifestos, but I was just wondering your thoughts about that. Uh, well, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, but no, you're good. What, okay. Well, you know, I haven't read any of the manifestos, so I don't, I don't know. Um, but, I, but I don't think that censorship is a, is a left or right issue. I think it's an up-and-down kind of issue. I think that uh, white power and black power need to get together and fight the power. Hmm. Interesting concept. Um, Dean, you could actually argue that that sometimes happens in our prison system because you work in the prison system, and I know that there are some people from both sides in the prison system, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about what our guest is saying and everything as I bring you into the conversation as well. I think he said it all. Black power and white power need to get together to fight it because if not, it becomes a game of tug of war. It's a back and forth and it is wasted time. Like 
there's so many other things that we can do, and, and I've said it before, that, that we could do to better uh, make a better life for our people in this country. Good people are good people regardless of where they come from, background, financial status, and all of that stuff. We put all of those things to the side and realize that people are people. Some people may need more help than others. And we can get somewhere, you know. In the in the prison system, I'm out of uniform, so I'm I'm on the side of what can we do to get you ready now so that when you leave this place, you made a mistake and you're here. All right, what's next? You know, I'm not here to uh, browbeat you, ridicule, or anything like that. Now, what is the plan so that when you walk out of those doors, you don't come back? You know, I'm always going to have somebody there. I'm not going to run out of uh, um, tenants, if you will. But don't become a repeat customer. You know what I mean? So now what are, what are you going to do while you're here by way of getting your education, by way of programming, by way of thinking differently than you did, which led you to where we are now? You know, it's time to do something different. If you do what you always did, you get what you always got. And definitely, you know, and, and now my job is to say, you know what, there is a different way. You weren't afraid to, to you know, try that way. Don't be afraid to try this way. If we can agree that you're at the lowest point that you can ever be. Don't be afraid to try because there's no way you can fall off of the floor. You know, so just having changing the mindset, changing the way, you know, people have turned so many things into a huge back and forth and there's really no real right or wrong in some of those situations. Being vaccinated is one of them. It's like, all right, well, they said according to what the the vaccine, those that haven't been vaccinated are now showing signs of being attacked by this Delta variant. But let's go all the way back. Who let the vac? Who let the the virus out? Because it, to me, they just don't materialize out of anywhere. If that's the case, then we would have a virus every year, bigger than the flu. You know what I mean? So now I'm like, all right, those little science experiments failed miserably, but nobody wants to own up to it. <laughs> what, I what mean, that's what some people say happened with AIDS. <laughs> I honestly, and you know what, the older I get and the more you look at stuff and it say, you know what, maybe it's, it had a different name before, but no, not really, because people were not just dropping like flies, man. You know, like people were just dying at the beginning of the pandemic, like every day is so many people passed away. And it's like, if you remember that movie Outbreak, that's what it reminded me of, like all of a sudden people just started getting sick and it was droves of people. It wasn't like one or two people, a person here, a person there. It was people everywhere. And it had, it did not discriminate. So it didn't say, you know, like, you know, like some people try to, Oh, it's only this region or it's only this race. or it's only man. That virus was taking out everybody. Like if I can catch you, you're gone. So now we got to start thinking, you know, everything isn't a, a battle. Some people may want it to be that way, but it's not. And when good people get together to fight all of the silliness, maybe we'll start changing some stuff around. 
No, that makes I'm a so lot of sense, I think. Now I was going to ask George, what are some of your thoughts? The other thing that I've heard people talk about, and I want to get your reflections on this, is the stimulus has gone out there and people that are getting money and have been receiving money, and, of course, some people, there's been a big petition for us to get a forced stimulus. And I'm not going to lie, because you actually use that money and everything. But there is that push, but then there are folks that are like, you know, there's a lot of restaurants and businesses that are shutting down or shutting down early or not even opening because they can't get enough staff because people are feeling that staying at home is enough of a, that they can make as much money staying at home and they're safer. So they are probably buying into what's going on with some of the thoughts around the pandemic, but definitely uh, they are using the stimulus money as day-to-day survival. And I know just here, I went to some restaurant and they had closed a little bit early because they had a big sign, you know, we're short on staff. So definitely that is going on and not just here in North Carolina, but throughout the country. And I know that's even some of the summer jobs like swimming pools and beaches and things of that nature. But I was just wondering your thoughts about the impact of some of the economic decisions that have been made by both the current president and the past president. Uh, well, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm not an economist, but um, thanks, thanks for that, Dean. You know, I, I am, it's great to hear that, uh, that kind of refrain. Um, so I, I can speak to that from a from a personal level. Um, right. I know that, and 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 Dean, I have some experience with the criminal justice system. Um, and what it what it took for me getting out of that was um, was a spiritual awakening. So in that process, I've become okay. more more right-minded, um, in in the sense that uh, I believe the path to prosperity comes through responsibility. Um, True. And the 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 longer that uh, the government um, decides to come to us with a with a handout, and the more that these more that people decide to accept that handout. You know, it was Reagan that said that if the government told you that they were there to help, that you got to run the other way. And um, unfortunately, in, in in this generation, it's become more acceptable to um, accept that loaf of bread from from the government. And um, I feel like people are becoming more and more dependent on that. You know, when if uh, you you go for a year and a half without working and the government tells you that it's okay to do that and that you should be afraid to go outside. Uh, it keeps you from developing as a person. Um, and I, and that touches on all levels of our society. Very from, true. From economics to, to school to, um, to uh, human relationships and, and family relationships. So I'm of the mind that people, that, that people need to get back to work. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it might be a little less than what the government might be giving you, but I think what you'll find is in, in doing that work and putting in the sweat that, um, that, that people will find a sense of dignity again. And I think that's more important than, the, than any amount of money you might be making in a paycheck. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually had that conversation about education with um, the founders of Another network that I'm involved with, which is now called Pod TV, it used to be called, well, it's still called International Broadcast Media as well, but the found, one, both of the founders have talked about the fact that they feel that the education system is stuck in the 
uh, 18th century, even though we're in the 21st century. And they really wish our schools would teach more about uh, financial literacy and about some of the things that we need on a regular basis. But I was just wondering, is that kind of where you are with education, that you wish that we would actually have a more reflection about true values that can help people on a day-to-day basis? Yes, absolutely. I think financial literacy is a, is a huge part of that. Um, uh, the importance of saving, you know, just because the government's giving you a stimulus doesn't mean you need to go. That means that things are bad and that you probably should save that money. Um, and uh, I, I think more broadly, we need a, a metamorphosis of the college campus as well because as you, you know, we have the um, – one of our biggest bubbles is the student debt bubble. I don't think that anybody really knows uh, how to how to deal with that in a way that um, that is uh, that is equitable and uh, and revolutionary. Um, I mean, we 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 the college system, at least the higher education system, has been working um, off this idea of a credit hour for many, 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 many years. I don't know how far back it goes, but at least at least a hundred years I wanna say, I wanna throw that out there. That basically your your degree, your um whatever it is that the institution says that you're competent in is based off of how many um how many hours your butt was in a chair and, and if you if you got C's or not. And I think that with um just because there's Frankly, no better way for them to track it um, up until very recently where we had this innovation of um, digital badging and uh, verified credentialing, um, which is actually a a company that I uh, started seven years ago. It's a company called Metacampus that actually – so there's there's been some funny things in my life that intertwined where I was – trying to raise money for that business, ended up getting arrested and having the whole system come down on me. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, we need a, we need a metamorphosis in our college campus, the way we, the way that we, what we, first of all, what we teach, the way that we track how, um, how students are learning and then ultimately the values that are imbued in that, because I feel like, um, at least over the last 60 years, um, the, the college environment has has swung very far to the left. Well, definitely. I hear you and everything. So what are some of the ways that you would like the education system to be changed if you could just, like, have a magic wand and change the education system? If I had a magic wand, I'd I'd, uh, implement a system of uh, massively open online administration. The, um, The number one cost, when you look at all of the all of the costs associated with higher education, the number one rising cost over the last thirty or forty years has been the cost of administration and um, the role of the college administrator uh, on campus uh, as sort of a um, uh, as sort of a bureaucratic role that is quasi state uh, in that the at least the public institutions perform uh, the role of, um, of of the training facilities that ultimately will, will lead to gainful employment. Um, and there's been a, a growth in the ranks of the bureaucracy 
um, of those institutions, and ultimately they're they're, a, um, they're an offshoot of of state government, um, as things would be. And so, in order to combat that, I would I would uh, implement a system of massively open online administration and get rid of all those administrators. And what that yeah, means is, so I, I should probably I should probably explain. So um, I, I don't know how familiar you, you two are with the massively open online courses, but this was a um, a revolution in course delivery, uh, essentially providing free or near free courses uh, through um, public institutions like. Uh, I think starting with uh, starting with Stanford was the first Coursera course where they were teaching artificial intelligence and machine learning um, with Andrew Ang as, as the instructor. Um, so massively open online administration would be an offshoot of that. So similar to what Cornell was doing when they were doing some of that uh, contact tracing, because I know that some of those courses were taught through those kind of online courses, and I know that there have been other things that have been taught through online courses, and I actually have some friends that have been professors in that system. So I think that I hear what you're saying, even though sometimes I've heard them complain about administration as well. So I do sometimes wonder if the online universities don't have as many administrative problems as some of our academic institutions, even though they're not as uh, big, so maybe their problems aren't as uh, big in the sense that they're micro versus macro managed in that sense. So they might be smaller, but then again, sometimes they're also spread out. Because I know, in the, one of my friends teaches, and she lives all the way in Las Vegas, but some of her courses might be as far away as Denver or New York or even here in this area. Because I know that she was teaching in one course at Ferrum, which is in Virginia. So sometimes it spreads our people out in terms of you and our faculty members, and I know that some of my teacher friends complain about the tenure system in the more traditional universities, and that can be a nightmare because a lot of them are on contract-to-contract basis because that whole tenure system, from what I've heard, and I've not been a professor myself, but it seems like a total nightmare. But I just wonder your assessment of both the tenure system and the fact that sometimes the online universities are very spread out. Well, uh, so this is obviously a, a nuanced uh, subject and probably painting things in broad strokes and saying that we should get rid of all the campus administrators and that will solve everything is, uh, is obviously not the solution. I don't think that there is a solution or a, a silver bullet to, um, to higher education, but uh, I, I think tenure is important. I think that um, there's – been a, a move away from tenure um, and that really encroaches on the on the concept of uh, academic freedom which is the entire uh, Western scientific and uh, higher education models is based off of this concept that you can um, you, you can hold whatever academic opinion you want um, you know as long as it's supported uh, by by science um, so I think moving away from, from tenure is probably the wrong thing, um, simply because, um, you know, when my family came to the United States from, from the Soviet Union, and when, when you have um, a regime that uh, teaches a particular Marxist uh, 
science or a Marxist philosophy, uh, there is a strict party line to what the science is. And if you step outside of that party line, then um, you are immediately labeled a dissident. This is how the communist system works. Um, and and so whereas the Western system is, is, is the complete opposite of that or should be, um, and uh, that system has been traditionally based off of the concept of uh, academic freedom and uh, tenure. Um, so it sounds like you know you've been a professor. You understand, you know the the rigors of an academic environment and how um, different professors will will jockey with each other for uh, you know potential deanship or things like this. Um, and so I, I think that um, that tenure is a is a cornerstone of um, of of Western academia. Yeah, that makes sense, everything. You know, here in the Carolinas, we had a lot of people that were very much up in arms on both sides when uh, Hannah Jones and Hannah Nicole Jones uh, wanted to get tenure, and now she's going to be having it at Howard and everything. But I was just wondering your thoughts about that whole stir-up and about the whole role of um the 1619 project and everything, because we did have a lot of conversation around the tenure, around educational rights, and all of that when Nicole Hannah Jones was being involved in the whole concept of whether she was going to come to UNC, whether she should come to UNC, and then eventually the Knight folks created a scholarship um, position for her at Howard, and they're also bringing Tanisha Coates to that same program, and who knows who else they're recruiting as well. But I was just wondering what your thoughts were when you heard about. That. Oh, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So you're you're. It sounds like you're referring to a, a historically uh, black college um, issue. I, you know, those names don't ring a bell to me. Unfortunately, I um, know who those people are. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. Like I said, Hannah Nicole Jones was coming here to University of North Carolina, and there was some concept of whether part of the argument was that she was teaching critical race theory and was teaching about um, that kind of philosophy and that that shouldn't be taught, whereas in my mind, a lot of that is just about us teaching history in the truth of how history is and all of that. So definitely uh, was wondering your thoughts on that as well. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. You're, you're trying to get me to take a position on critical race theory. Uh, you know, I've I've read um, I've read White Fragility, um, which uh, you know, at least um, at least from a theoretical perspective, I, I think that that was um, one of the leading pieces of literature um, surrounding uh, critical race theory. Obviously. Um, there's a number of historical facts uh, going back to, uh, you know, the Dred Scott decision and, and you know, as far back into um, in the in the early slavery. Um, so I look at that from the perspective of um, from as as a white man, I actually. Uh, I think what precipitated this interview to begin with was a book that I wrote called uh, Mania. Uh, and yes. in it, I touch on the topic of, of um, 
uh, of slavery and the condition of the black man uh, in the United States, and not just not just African Americans, but but also um, First Nation Americans, uh, and and where uh, this whole idea of um, manifest destiny and white privilege um, sit in the um, in, in the broader arc of, of history. Um, and so I'd like to read it to you, if that's okay. Yes, please. Okay. And, and so, by the way, this is titled Letter to a Child. Um, but, you know, obviously that's, you know, um, anyway, that, that's what it's called. Um, and, and it goes something like this. Uh, there was a time, child, where, when we all believed the world was flat, and we thought the heavens revolved around us, and we never ventured far from home in fear, and falling, in fear of falling from the edge of the earth into the abyss of hell. And the white man lived in Europe, a place across the Atlantic Sea, and he sent ships in search of Atlantis, the ancient continent down, drowned in the ocean. Then one day, one of these ships came back and proclaimed that it had found America, the new Atlantis over in the west. And the white man found the Indian man living there, in harmony with the earth, and the white man thought this very strange and called the Indian man a savage and decided to kill him and round him up on reservations, and he called this his manifest destiny. Then the white man went to Africa and enslaved the black man, bringing him to America, shackled in the hulls of boats to serve him on his newly claimed manifested land. And the black man built white privilege generation upon generation and when the white man was sufficiently privileged, he freed the black man from his bonds. And the black man was free but not equal. So he fought the white man in the streets, in the courtrooms, and he won his equal rights under the white man's law, and under the white man's God. And he used the white man's money and went to the white man's schools and spoke the white man's language and worked in the white man's economy for the white man's companies. Enslaved in a bigger box, one he could never dream to get out of, except not all the white men liked having the black man roaming free in their box. And this caused tensions. And the white man made politically correct the terms by which to call the black man, and by which to treat the black man. And he taught this to all the children in the schools. And the black man became an African-American, and the Indian became a Native American. And they all lived together under the same laws and under the same God. And they got drunk off the white man's liquor and his synthetic drugs and his narcotics. And the white man sold this American dream to the rest of the world and to its future generations. And where they had been sold another dream, he brought his tanks and his fighter jets and his missiles and his attack drones and claimed manifest destiny over those lands as well in the name of democracy and freedom. And he watched with his all-seeing eye this, the world is oyster. Like the times of long ago and the times that would come again, Atlantis, oh calamity, the man unleashed upon himself, and just as once the world was round, it became flat again, and we ventured not far from home. Well, so, that was deep in every. Go ahead. Well, well, well. Thank you. Um, so that that's kind of my social commentary on on the condition of uh, of the white man in the in the in the arc of history. But I'll, but I'll tell you that every relationship that I've had with uh, with somebody of of a, of a different race. Um, has been built off of a mutual uh, respect uh, and understanding, uh, and of, um, of, the, of, of, of of an understanding of different cultures, and of um, uh, and, and on a personal level to also understand uh, 
boundaries, right? So we're we're we're, we're not um, the same. We're different, and when we're different, we're the same. Um, so I don't know. I, I hope that my so I, so on one side, I understand the plight of the 1619 project in wanting to have its its own identity uh, and its own um, voice within the uh, broader scope of, of the American system. But on the other hand, I find that um, constantly calling somebody out as, as, as a racist without knowing the person or without having that basis or foundation for, for mutual respect, I think, um, I think leads down a, a perilous path. Yep. I hear you. So what actually got you to write the book, Manny? I love the title, by the way. That's actually what caught my ears and everything. So I'm just wondering what decided to make you want to write this particular book and to get this message out. Well, well, thanks so much for that. Um, so it, it speaks to mania is um, is a part of uh, of manic depressive condition. So that's something that I was uh, diagnosed with after uh, spending some time in in solitary confinement, um, and and then fighting that for for many years. So I mentioned cancel culture early on in this conversation. Um, I was accused of uh, attempted kidnapping uh, in the second degree um, seven years ago. And the fact of the matter is that there was never any attempted kidnapping. It was just a a big misunderstanding where um, I went out of of concern. I went to check on uh, two girls who had been left alone uh, in at T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. Uh, in the middle of a park in broad daylight, you know, middle of the day. Uh, and so anyway, I got accused of attempted, attempted kidnapping, got put in solitary confinement, and left there for um, for eight weeks while the media spun the story about a, a mentally ill man, um, uh, you know, with a, with a history of mental health and, um, uh, you know, attempting to, to steal a kid from, you know, the middle of the park in broad daylight, which is frankly, fantastic and fake, um, but, uh, you know, that's the story that the, that the state of Washington likes to tell, um, and so I fought them in court over this over many years, and 
uh, I ended up writing this book because I had, frankly, nothing else left to do besides uh, ruminate on my life and figure out what the heck I was going to do with it after um, after going through a, a complete character assassination. Uh, so the book details it's, – it's a book of poetry um, – it, it details my uh, life living in a, in a halfway home, um, dealing with um, drug and alcohol addiction, uh, and uh, and so as you can see, there's there's parts of it where where my writing there there becomes there's like a budding clarity to it where you, you can tell I've been sober for a couple of days, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so eventually. So this is my way of, of, of telling my story, of getting my uh, name back into society um, and um, showing people what I'm capable of, which is, I like to think is, is, some, is some pretty good poetry um, and, uh, and, and obviously many other things. So. Yeah, one of the things I was curious about is you mentioned, and actually one of my other guests uh, was going through some similar things, and he's actually been dealing with uh, depression and things of that nature, and that was actually my guest on one of my live streams earlier today. But we were talking about the importance of um, coming to terms with our mental health and things of that along those lines. But I was just wondering, in your mind, how important was it was for you to go through those journeys? Because I think that too often we in society don't want to even deal with our mental health and our things that are in that space. I mean, we have a hard enough time going to see our doctors, like our regular physical doctors. And when we started thinking about therapy and mental health, a lot of us start getting a certain way about ourselves. So I was just wondering, as one who's gone through this, how has your growth developed in that regard. Absolutely. So I'd say um, that my stability really came with my awakening and in, in, in sobriety um, and understanding that we live really in, a, in an upside-down world um, and and mental health is, is frankly a consequence of that. You know, I um, – Growing up in high school, I was um, I was pretty decent at uh, calculus and physics, and when I watched the uh, twin towers come down on uh, September first, um, the you know the simple math of two planes and three towers collapsing didn't make any sense to me, um, and and so I've been I've been I've been questioning uh, my world uh, ever since that day. And, um, and so I think that mental health is just a consequence of the society that we live in and people that struggle with that, um, you know, I can just speak from my own experience that we, that we need to take some time apart from the mania of the, of the world that we live in because sometimes someone that, that, uh, that we label crazy in an insane world is actually the same one. 
interesting you say that. I remember that when I was in college, I actually wrote a short story, and that was actually the theme of the short story. And I remember I was actually um, a journalism major, and I want to say it was a creative course within the journalism, but it was basically a short story that had a person talking about uh, what was going on in the uh, outside world, but they were doing it while they were in a mental institution. So they were basically looking at that time, and this was written in the early 80s at pollution at some of the things that we were doing in terms of the war and in terms of other things and they were bringing all these points out together and then the kind of punchline of the story was you call me crazy but y'all are doing all that crazy stuff out there and everything so that was kind of the punchline of the story was that um i don't know how y'all are calling me crazy when as i'm reflecting on all the things that are going on in the world y'all are the ones that seem to be the ones that are a little bit on the outside so i love that story and i might even still have a copy of it floating around somewhere and if i do i'll try to dig it up and send it to you because it sounds like that's very yeah. much similar to what your poetry is about and all of that but um definitely a Please lot of the do. points deal with Okay, a lot of the points deal with uh, drug addiction and the law and how the law impacted you even while coping with the drug addiction. So I was wondering if you've got a point that you want to share with us about that aspect within Maniac, because I know it's a self-reflection book, oh, and it's definitely wanna, got a lot of aspects. Okay. One you of the points about it deals with addiction. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and mental health. Let me, yep. let, me, let, me, let me find one real quick. All right. Uh, While he's looking, Dean, what has your thoughts been so far about what Mr. George, uh, George Artem is talking about and some of the things that he's got going on and everything? So what has your thoughts been so far of the conversation while he's looking for the point? I mean, I'm trying to get my mic straight now. <laughs> Interesting conversation, man, and big things coming, you know what I mean? So. Salute to him for for making changes, you know what I mean? And it's all about sometimes changing perspectives so that you can do certain different things, you know what I mean? Yep, definitely. Yep. You still there, George? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Thanks for that. I'm just I'm I'm reading this back to myself in my head and I'm kind of um you know, that this so I don't know, this this poem kind of kind of glory in a way, you know, I feel like resonates with a lot of people that could be going through, uh, through, dr- through drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Um, and I, I, I read back at it and I, I kind of laugh a little bit as far as how far down the drain my life had gone. And, uh, when I, when I finished this, I want to, I just want to share, um, how how beautiful my life is today and how grateful I am for the people that have helped me along the road. Uh, but this one is yeah, called uh, Hangover. This one's called Hangover. And it starts with the day after I get out of jail the most recent time, immensely hungover and coming down from the coke, lying down in my bed, my bare mattress, and a few loose sheets and pillows that I call my bed. I crawl down the stairs of the bare linoleum floor below and look inside the mini fridge underneath the only counter in my apartment, hoping to find something in there that would cure the banging in my head, sriracha and apple cider vinegar and fat-free ranch. 
I stick my face under the faucet instead and run the water switching to cold and gulp at the, at the passing stream as most of it goes under the, down, down my chin and onto the floor. I give up and reach for the vinegar and take a big swig. It doesn't help. I drive heave and immediately feel like I need to take a shit. I open the bathroom door and take a seat. My head throbs as I'm pushing out last night's log. It's bigger than I thought it would be, and I nearly pass out there on the toilet with this legendary shit stuck half, half out of me. I push again, and my head throbs, and I feel it on its way out, and I let it go, and the throbbing stops for an instant, and I do pass out there for a moment, sitting with the bathroom door open. So that poem tries to make light of probably one of the, one of the uh, one of the many days that I felt like crap waking up, um, and 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 what I can say today, uh, having been um, by the grace of God sober for for just over three years now, is that I, I never have to deal with that ever anymore, uh, and I'm and I'm happy to wake up every morning and to. Uh, take the day as it is and accept life on life's terms, um, and uh, just just the beauty that uh, uh, that is that is brought into my life every day by the grace of God. So, hey George, one of the things that I was going to bring up that I got from your uh, publishing everything, but too often I feel that we, even to this day, even in the 21st century, that we spend too much time thinking of drugs and drug addiction as being that problem that exists in the other part of society, meaning the lower class and maybe to some degree the lower middle class, but it doesn't impact the middle class and the rich and things of that nature. And I'm not saying that your dad was or grandfather was all that wealthy, but he did work as an engineer at Boeing, and definitely you had some other family members that were involved in Seattle software industry and all of that. So it seems, and even you were involved in that, so definitely you were involved in that more affluent society. But outside of the Hollywood community, which, of course, we all think about that, the Hollywood and the athletic community, oftentimes they feel, don't think about the fact that uh, these times and even these drug addictions can happen in the most affluent of neighborhoods. I imagine that there's some people even where I'm living at in some of the affluent neighborhoods that are involved in that aspect of society. And I know that I've got a cousin that was involved in the meth community for a while. So I know it impacts us no matter where our place in society is, but I'd love for you to speak to that as well because I was just giving a little bit of your family history and a little bit of your own work as you've worked in that Seattle software industry. But, you know, sometimes I still feel that society in general wants it to be like a um, the poor man's problem. You know, it's something that impacts all, all of society. Um, and, you know, I don't know, you know, the Hollywood world, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's cheap to, uh, you know, go to, go to rehab five times and, um, you know, take months of time off of work, uh, in, in order to do that. Um, uh, so, you know, I was fortunate, um, growing up in, in, a, in a middle-class home. Um, and, um, so it, 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 it impacts society, I think on, on all levels. I think that people with privilege are, are able to hide it better. Um, and, and simply, um, you know, through, through basic economics have, um, 
have an opportunity to um, to have it not impact their life as much as it as it does poorer communities. Um, so I, I think you know drugs are are, are things that, that impact both rich and poor, um, and, I, and I think obviously uh, poor communities are are impacted uh, more heavily uh, than than affluent ones are. One of the things that I that I try to do in my uh, 12-step practice is to uh, bring the message to uh, people that are that are still suffering, um, and 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 frankly, I've gotten away from that. But I, I needed I need to do more of that. I constantly remind myself that I need to go out and and go to uh, to AA meetings and uh, and share my story because. Um, the life that I live today isn't the life that I was living, you know, even three years ago. Um, and even with just a few months of sobriety and a, a belief in a higher power that your life is going to get better, um, your, your life really truly does get better because you're, um, first of all, you're not spending money on alcohol or drugs. And the way that that impacts your pocketbook is pretty significant. So, um, yeah. you know, if there's if there's a if there's a way out of out of poverty, um, one of you know, I think this goes hand in hand with financial literacy, is um, you know, is, is, is sobriety and not uh, spending money on uh, on the drug or the alcohol, and instead, uh, you know, spending those on on groceries or rent or what have you, or, um, or 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 going out and getting that higher education, um, I think I think uh, is so important and um, yeah, can can help a lot of people. So uh, that's one of the things that I need to commit to getting back to is 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 practicing the twelve step and in um, sharing. Uh, sharing a message of hope with with uh, other people that are, that are still struggling. No, no doubt. And one of the things I was curious about is, particularly, I've talked to friends of mine who've gone through NA and other kind of programs. Is you know whether it was the Reagan administration's war on drugs, whether it was supposedly Trump getting tough on the, the borders. Um, Biden apparently has got some ideas about things around drugs and everything of that nature, but. Is that a war that we can actually win? You know, we talk about, like, the long-ranging wars like Vietnam and other wars, but is this a war that can actually be won? And if so, how can it be won? Because it seems like it's been going on forever, and I know that they've even had conversations where, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the drugs are coming from other countries, and sometimes we don't even do a good job of stopping it at the border. And I'm not just talking about the Mexican border, but even, like, some of the other ways that are going there. And, of course, it's mafia and other people have got their hands involved in it as well. So it just seems like there are so many power players involved that I wonder if it's an even winnable war. I know it's winnable on a personal level, but I'm talking about being winnable as that kind of governmental war on uh, drugs, which has been going on for centuries and well maybe not definitely decades and probably centuries because i know that there was even conversations around that with prohibition which is another form of a war on drugs well um to 
to that, I'll say that we, we went from a war on communism to a war on drugs to a war on terrorism to uh, a war on COVID-19. And I, I think that um, when whenever, the, having worked in the government for um, close to a year now, I, I think that whenever the government declares a war on something, it's just an excuse to, to spend your tax dollars. Yep, I can definitely see uh, that, and definitely gets. Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, so what I what I mean by that is that um, you know, in, in fighting the so-called war on drugs, uh, I think that that um, war can't be won by government or government programs. I think that that is uh, is a is a fight that needs to happen on. Um, on an, on an individual basis um, and really should start with the family. Um, and I think that um, one unannounced war that the government's been engaged in is the, is the war on the nuclear family. Um, and, in, and, you know, we, we kind of, we spoke about this a, l- a little bit uh, earlier when in talking about um, the government coming to you with the handout and, um, you know, standing up and, and accepting responsibility uh, instead of taking that loaf of bread. Um, but I, I think that uh, when we talk about the quote-unquote war on drugs, um, you know, these are these are things that need to be discussed within within family units, right? It has to come from father to son, from from mother to daughter, uh, and um, you know, using using stories like mine as as a as a prime example, um, you know, hangovers aren't aren't cool. Waking up on a on a park bench, um, you know, uh, next next to a, a, another homeless man or nearly homeless man, you don't know what happened the night before, uh, isn't a productive way to 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 live your life. Um, and it might be cool in the moment or where where, you know, I first got introduced to uh, drugs in, in, in high school uh, and, in, and in middle school, drinking in middle school and, and drugs in high school. Um, and, um, and, I, and I wish that I had a father in the home that, that could, have, could have told me that to not, not to do that. Um, so I, I think that... Um, that if uh, that if the government wants to win a war on drugs, it needs to happen on an individual level, and and they got to stop the war on the family. And how do you think that you would stop the war on the nuclear family? Because I mean, different people have different ideas of even now what a family unit is. And like I said, I've got friends that are in different communities, be that the LGBT community or even some that are in non-traditional families. So do you think that we should just be teaching traditional family values, like uh, the kind of uh, leave it to beaver attitude that used to exist in the <laughs> 50s, and some people would argue before that, or do we kind of like um, accept the fact that there are different kinds of family units out there? Well, you know, whatever whatever floats your boat. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is here. Um, you know, I'm not running for office or anything like that. I um you know, but but from a, from a personal level, I can tell you that um, uh, you know, in, in having an, an 
absent father figure. But, you know, there were people that tried to step in and, and fill that role. Um, but, uh, you know, as a rebelling teenager, that's something that I, that firm hand is something that I really needed. And I ultimately ended up realizing it and getting it, um, uh, getting it through the criminal justice system. Um, so, but, but as far as, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, same-sex same sex families, uh, I think that obviously they have a right to have children and, and raise children in, in the uh, way that they see fit. Um, you know, I don't need to be involved in that, but if that's their choice and, and they feel like they can raise um, uh, a, a child that, um, that is a productive member of society uh, that doesn't do drugs, then, then more power to them. No, I hear you, and actually my brother has worked with at-risk youth. He's worked with it for a number of years, and you are so right that a lot of times the reason those kids get involved in gang life or criminal life mentality is because they didn't have those uh, people that were being the uh, – compasses of their morals and things of that nature, be that a father or a father figure in their lives. So then they turn to other people like the gangs in order to find that kind of uh, support. And sometimes, of course, they were giving them very negative kind of advice and drawing them into a very negative lifestyle. Because I remember that he's had some folks that he had tremendous success with in terms of steering them out, but even he would tell you that he's lost them as well, because definitely when you're in that field, you don't always have all 100% successes. So there have definitely been some that have stayed within the criminal justice system and even some that are no longer here on the planet at all because, you know, their lives have been taken and all of that. So definitely I think that he would agree with you that you've got to have those strong figures in your life in order to uh, have a well-balanced life. And I would definitely not have any problem with that and uh, if that's what you mean by a strong family union then yes I think that we need to have that but you know at the same time we've also got this tremendous I had not realized how tremendous it was like an 80% divorce rate so maybe we're at that point in society where everybody's kind of wanting that um, instant gratification that instant success they instant everything whether it's in work or whether it's in relationships and are not always willing to do what my good friend Dean does because Dean will tell you that he's been in a long-term relationship, but it's a work and it's a work that both he and his wife are committed to being involved with. And I know that sometimes people are just too quick to bail without having to do the hard work, but I don't want to put words in Dean's mouth. So Dean, would I, is that a fair assessment of what you've said on this show several times? Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, share with George your philosophy about the family unit and how important your wife has been to you and your life and all of that. <laughs> well, I mean, when you look at, and are you talking about in like relationships as a whole? Relationships, right? In a whole, right? Yeah, you got to go in and be willing to 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 listen as well as speak. You know, there are times where you're not always going to be right. There are times where you'll be a hundred percent wrong. But when you're wrong, be able to accept the fact that you made a mistake. I was wrong. You were right. How are we going to fix this? Don't get into the blame game. Don't go back and forth. 
hey, sometimes you got to step away from a conversation before it turns into an argument because when you look back and you look at those arguments, some of them don't make sense. And some of them weren't worth the time that both of you put into it, you know. So sometimes you just got to, she says what she has to say, you say what you have to say. Okay, you realize y'all don't agree, let it go. Let it go. Find something that you both agree on and, and do that, you know, because it's extra work to argue and fight and then other things coming into play. You know, you got to have that honesty, trust, communication, humor, uh, sense of togetherness, you know, compassion and, and compromise. And you mix all of those things up and you put it together. And if you are with someone who is of like mind, then you have a beautiful relationship, you know, so that's it, man. No, I agree with you. Definitely. That's a great advice and great thoughts. What are your thoughts about that, George? And do you have any poems that deal with relationships? Because even though you were going through the hard times, I'm sure you also went through relationships. So do you have any poems that deal with relationships as well? I, I don't know. I, uh, I like what you said there, Dean. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't give away something that you don't have. And so asking me about uh, nuclear family and, and, you know, how to, how to solve family issues and, and relationship advice, I'm definitely the wrong person to talk to. <laughs> no, I definitely understand that. But I meant maybe just in your own life that you have was a poem that you had, because I know a lot of times people that consider themselves poets will have poems that reflect on various aspects of their life. So I guess what I was asking you was if you had a poem that dealt with just kind of like romance or things of that nature, or if they're all about addiction, or if there's a favorite poem that you have just in general. No, no, like I, at I, this. I, hear what, I hear what you're saying, I, and I, I do have one. It's a little bit about uh, unrequited love. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called First Date. It's on page uh, 17. Um, she sits in the front of my Jeep at 2 in the morning with her feet curled up into a tiny ball on her face to me in the driver's seat. Her prescription glasses taped together on both ends and roped around her neck rest just above her breast as she scratches off what remains of half a dozen or so lottery tickets, not one of them a winner. Just her luck, she says, as she rubs off the last letter of her crossword puzzle and tosses it into her feet. I'm about to protest regarding the cleanliness of my car, but then I catch something in the side of her mouth that looks like it could be something like a smile and decide to let it slide. We pass the whiskey back and forth as she rattles off about her exes and how they did her wrong and generally about how everything in her life has gone to shit. I respond with some tales of my own, my sent in jail, my trumped up charges, my time in solitary, my manic depressive diagnosis, my failed engagement, Two peas in a pod. She's just as beautiful as I remember her. Perhaps her only redeeming quality at this point in the night and the small fact that I've had a soft spot for hers ever since I got shipped off to boarding school at the age of 14. So I'm willing to put up with her unloading on me for the moment. This goes on for several hours. Her shit story is longer than mine, much longer. And after a while, the only thing I can think to come back with is that at any given moment, there are tens of tiny cockroaches crawling around my Skid Row apartment. Impressive. Well, let's hang out in an empty, empty parking lot drinking for a few hours. 
then why not come over and sleep with me and my insect friends? It is, after all, 5 in the morning, and I'm in no position to drive, so, so take me home and spend the night while you're at it. How romantic. I knew I had it. I knew I had it somewhere in me to be able to woo the ladies. Somehow this works, and after a few gas station machine-made lattes, we're headed back to my place at nearly 6 a.m. to inspect the cockroaches. Maybe kill a few for sport. The truth is more that she's doing me the favor of taking my drunk ass home, but for the sake of my ego, I'm more inclined to believe in the effectiveness of the cockroach story. I make a mental note of including it in my bag of general douchebaggery magic, and off we go into the sunrise. I pass out for a moment or two on the way over and forget entirely about the insects and the douche magic. She's speeding and muttering something to herself that sounds like a question. I nod my head in agreement. The birds are chirping by the time we're outside my apartment. The best I can muster is, is to offer up a hug and a thank you as I stumble out of her car and up the steps to my place. We've left my truck on the opposite side of town, and she promises to come back the next day so we can go back there and get it. That's good enough, I guess. Wow, powerful poem. Definitely some great thoughts. You know, I've had some friends that have gone through hardships as well, um, and I've become friends with them. I remember one guy that goes, went to one of the local um, churches. It's actually a church that was meeting out of the cultural arts center that I work at. And um, definitely there's another gentleman that I think claims Native American ancestry. But in both cases, they, like you, were able to find love even in the, the most difficult situations. Now, whether that was love of convenience or whether that was true love, only the course of time will tell. But I was just wondering your thoughts about these kind of, you know, just like there's jailhouse romances, I would argue that there are street romances as well. And I've seen at least three or four examples of that here in uh, Durham, where I'm at, and I'm sure if I went to other cities, I'd see that also. So um, do you think that society, as a general rule, should just kind of, as oftentimes we do, discount those romances? Because I know sometimes we'll even see couples out working the streets together. And as somebody that's been through that kind of situation, what would your advice be to the common citizen as to how they should deal with folks that are going through hard times and homelessness and things of that nature because, you know, I oftentimes will sit down and actually have conversations with them and, uh, and, you know, try to learn about what they've got going on. Now, you know, they may also hit me up for money, and if I've got it, I may spare it, and they may also hit me up, as one did yesterday, for spare clothes. I haven't figured out anything that I could actually give them, but that doesn't mean that I won't at some point or another. But I was just wondering your thoughts about how general public public population should deal with folks that went through what you went through back then. There's a rule in AA that, you know, if you, if you hang out at AA long enough, if you spend at least three months sober, uh, you'll, you'll find that um, you're probably better off dating another sober person. Uh, and it's, it's generally not advised to start dating until um, you, you've been more than more than a year sober. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. 
only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. And um, my, my dating rule, my preference is, is, has been to try to find some other person that, that, that I can share sobriety with, uh, or at least someone who's um, not abusing uh, drugs or alcohol, somebody that uh, you know, might, might drink socially here and there. Uh, but, but as far as, you know, approaching people with, that are in the throes of uh, drug and alcohol addiction, um, my, my hope would be that other uh, people treat those folks with, um, with, with some compassion um, and to, you know, allow them a certain amount of, amount of grace, um, you know, if, if things are acting up and to um, definitely not try to date them because, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, if you are dating somebody that you know has, has a, a addiction problem that um, uh, inevitably you, you might be tempted to take advantage of them in that problem. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I, I have I have my own difficulties with with relationships and obviously my past relationships, and um, so I, frankly, I'm not really one one to give advice. Um, but uh, that that's the general rule, at least when. When you come into the halls of AA. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know sometimes people also get caught up in that um, codependency kind of attitude as well, because I know some friends of mine that have been involved with folks in relationships, and it seems like, and not always just the drug and alcohol. I've also seen it with people's even mental health, and a lot of times they will be, wind up being codependent and even finding ways to enable people to do the wrong actions that they are part of. And I was just wondering your thoughts about um, codependencies and folks that are enablers, because I do know that that exists as well, but I just want to know your thoughts about that and how folks should uh, deal with that if they have those traits. Well, what's so hard for for our generation, for my generation at least, is that uh, in order to afford to be able to live anywhere, you're, you're pretty much, unless, unless you're making a lot of money, um, you know the average the average person is kind of into is is forced into uh, a codependency uh, because you know whether that's with you know same sex roommates or a same sex couple or you know or a um, I guess you would call it a heteronormative couple couple um, you're you're forced into a codependency because uh, a lot of a lot of folks can't survive. Um, independently and they simply don't make you know if you're working one job or maybe two jobs um you, you got to make the rent every month and 
living alone, that's not such an easy thing to, to do. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a generation that, that pools its resources in order to be able to survive in, um, you know, uh, in, in the world. You know, I'm, I'm in my 30s, and I, I make a decent amount of money now, and I'm, I'm just now moving into my own place. Um, so I think the, I think the economics of, uh, of life in, in 2021 is, are, are ones that just simply feed a, a feed codependency as, uh, as a need. I don't know whether that resonates with either of you, but, um, that's just been my experience. No, I definitely understand and like I said, I'm in my late fifties, um, Dean's a little bit younger and everything, but definitely not a spring chicken either, but I can definitely resonate with what you're saying and all of that. You know, there's also times that we get caught up in stereotypes and I was actually gonna come back to your um and I know that you're I guess would be considered second or third generation, but one of my friends is Sasha Starr that does a show with me, and he's of Russian descent but now lives in Canada. He's like a chess master and all of that. But, you know, he kind of falls into the stereotype of being one of those, uh, you know, you can call it vodka or whiskey drinking Soviets and everything, but (laughs) definitely we still think of the Cold War and the Soviets in that sense. So I'm just wondering how much do you think our stereotypes play into our attitude around people? Because I know a lot of people, when they hear Russia, they think of, of course, the historical Cold War. They think of the cold nature, and they definitely think of hard-drinking, vodka-drinking individuals. Well, you know, whenever I tell people that I'm Russian, one of the first things they ask me is if I'm a spy, and I immediately tell them that I'm not. Um, <laughs> and, and then the next thing they ask me is whether, whether, and I, I, whether or not I drink vodka and if I can tell them something in Russian. Um, so I think that maybe your, your friend Sasha and I would have a, a lot to relate to. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, I, I kind of played most of those things off as, as a joke. And then, you know, and then I found myself filling that stereotype, you know, oddly enough, <laughs> drinking to the point of blackout, um, you know, pretending to be a spy and, uh, and various other ridiculous things. So, and I, and by the way, I do play chess as well. Okay, cool. Well, I'll definitely have to tell him that. And we actually do a show about uh, every day on an uh, any on a daily basis on the Pod TV International Broadcast Media Network, and it's like from ten to eleven. So I'll just send you a link, and maybe you can jump on and meet Mr. Star, and y'all can share that Russian uh, U.S. background. <laughs> I'm not sure what your work schedule allows, and all of that says you are in the United States and have some Russian roots in him. He actually lived in Russia, and he's an older gentleman. He's probably I know he's older than I am. My guess would be in his seventies, but I may be. Um, either shortening his age or increasing it, but my guess would be in the early 70s is where he's at, because I know he's definitely at least a few years older than me, if not a decade or more, but definitely that's where I would guess that his age range is, but y'all would definitely have some commonalities, as you just put it, so that would be a very interesting conversation. You just mentioned that you played being a spy. How does one play at being a spy? I actually knew a true spy here in the United States, and actually I think he had Russian ties as well, and we worked at a grading company, but 
Um, you can actually look him up, but I want to say Peter, and I can't think of Peter's last name, but he was one of those folks that was caught spying and then spent some time in the prison system and then eventually got out, and then he's doing – I do a variety of jobs. One of them is, of course, my media background, and then I work for a cultural arts center, but I also work for a grading company, a testing company, like end-of-the-year tests, and that's where – uh, Mr. Peter sometimes works as well and all of that. So um, definitely those kind of folks do exist, including real spies. But how did you play a pretend spy? Uh, so this was um, at, uh, at Standing Rock. I don't know if you all remember what was going on there. Um, obviously the uh, North Dakota Access Pipeline protest. Right. Um, I remember. I got I got arrested out there, and uh, I told I told the people that arrested me that I was from uh, the National Reconnaissance Office, and I think they believed me. Wait a minute. There is no National Reconnaissance Office, so you made up an office, is what you did. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like the Office of Alien Property. Okay, that, that doesn't exist either. So you just created these wonderful offices and all of that. That's amazing. I had asked you earlier, and definitely Mania is a great book, and I want people to know more about it. One of the things that I found unusual, but I definitely want you to read some other pieces, but, but before we get to that, is that you are actually selling part of it in terms of how people can get it in something that is becoming very popular, which is cryptocurrency. So I was just wondering, what made you decide to use the uh, cryptocurrency route in terms of getting the book out there? And it sounds like you're a fan of cryptocurrency because when I was reading the bio and the stuff that uh, your publicist had sent me, I was like, wait a minute, they're using cryptocurrency. I have not seen a lot of authors doing this, even though I imagine it's going to become more common since everybody can have their own coin or their own uh group can have their own coin as well. So definitely it sounds like more and more cryptocurrency things may happen even in the Amazon space and in some of the other uh, spaces. But when I saw that, I was like, this is unusual. I'm going to have to ask George about this. So what made you go that route? Well, I, uh, so I've been playing around with cryptocurrency for um, at least, uh, I want to say, you know, five years now. There was a point in time where I had imported a miner uh, and was attempting to do some mining. Um, I also happened to be a, so a, a master of science in uh, information systems, so I have a I have a technical background and can kind of understand the uh, concepts behind uh, uh, cryptocurrency and, and, and blockchain. Not that you need to have a master of science to be able to understand those things. Um, but I became fascinated with that um, four, five, six years ago uh, and started in, investing in some Bitcoin um, and, uh, and and visiting places that were at the time in, in Seattle accepting Bitcoin as, as a form of payment. And um, so I thought that that was pretty cool back then. Um, and... Uh, and recently, I, I made the switch into uh, into Dogecoin, and have invested in some some other alternative current cryptocurrencies. Um, but you're right; everybody everybody and and their mom wants to create their own uh, cryptocurrency. Um, and I and I have my own uh, cryptocurrency project that's 
um, called Little Rabbit Coin, and it's a uh, Matrix-themed uh, meme coin uh, with the idea that you should that you should follow the white rabbit and see where it leads. Wow. Speaking, uh, of following the white, speaking of following the white rabbit and seeing where it leads, you had also mentioned earlier AI, and I've had some fascinating conversations, including on that news program, about um, Sophia, which, of course, is the artificial intelligence that's been walking around and even been on um, news shows and talk shows and things of that nature. So, um, And, of course, some people are concerned that eventually AI will uh, – make us vegetation and lazy and there'll be no need for human <laughs> workers. But that's just kind of a mythology in my mind. But I was wondering what your thoughts are about AI. And do you have any concerns about AI um, kind of like moving us humans out of existence? Well, I mean, how, how deep does, does the rabbit hole go and how, how much time do you have? Uh, so, the, you know, I, I, I guess you – you know, we, we've, we're going down, we're clearly going down a path of, of, of transhumanism. Uh, and the last 15 months, um, we've all been, you know, victim to these lockdowns. And what's been going on um, is a, a, a reprogramming of society you know, a, a, a way to, quote, unquote, build back better and have a, you know, quote, unquote, great reset. So um, in, in many ways, this is a, um, a, a spiritual um, and uh, occult dehumanization of, uh, of what we thought was, was normal uh, everyday life and, um I feel like, with, particularly with the amount of information and misinformation that's out there today, um, people have really begun to question their surroundings and their uh, their life as they used to understand it. Um, and um, you know, AI is is one part of um, one part of transhumanism. So if you take the uh, Elon Musk perspective of that we are all, we are already under the control of an AI, uh, and that the sort of human um, human AI brain interface is only as fast as our thumbs, um, and with the idea that that should then be sped up somehow um, into a human hive mind. Um, you know, there's <laughs> you got Ghost Super Mario. <laughs> you know, no, that was like our uh, mar- that was our minute <laughs> marker that tells us how much longer we've got. So we've got about t- roughly ten minutes. So that's kind of our minute marker. But go ahead with your thoughts. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, let me see. There's there's actually something. Um, a Murakami had. Uh, written a, a book called uh, After Dark, which is, a, which is actually an interesting, um, it's an interesting story about how, uh, how a human city awakens in the morning. Um, and I, I, as I wrote a, a, a brief poem on, it was sort of an homage to, um, to that piece. And he, he compares humans as, 
you know, a human city as sort of a colony of of ants uh, that that shares a um, a collective intelligence. Um, and so this is this is called Telemann in, in E minor. Okay. Uh, Telemann in E minor through my headphones, battling Mariah and Brandy on the cafe speakers. As I battle the thoughts and words coming in the lines on the blank virtual page, a girl next to me sits eating her bagel locks and watching some movie on her iPhone, oblivious to what's going on next to her and her salmon and, and cream cheese bliss. As I remember Murakami and After Dark and how in many pages he would toil over just a few vignettes, passing the time from night till morning, but it's just past 9 a.m. and the city is now awake with lines of human ants filling her streets, Blowing at a full stop in the morning rush to get to work or wherever. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. Own the road with T-Mobile, the leader in 5G. Whether you're cruising through Nashville on I-40, heading down I-90 to Boston, or touring Santa Cruz in the 5, you'll be covered by the largest 5G network. T-Mobile covers the most interstate highway miles in America with 5G. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Most reliable according to independent third-party Umlock from crowdsourced user experience data from January to July 2021. Fastest according to Open Signal Awards based on average speeds in USA 5G user experience report July 2021. And voice to men blast out Vivaldi's concerto in G, the light and playful strings in my ears replaced by a heavy bass line and acapella. And I wonder if the girl with the locks is going through the same auditory anguish as I am with her movie. Suddenly the locks are gone and she crumples up the paper and they, that they came in and puts it in her paper coffee cup and closes the lid, puts her movie on pause, gets up and lifts her backpack from the chair in front of her and turns to walk, walk out the door without further incident. Shortly after, a man takes her place at the table and wipes off the crumbs she left in her, in her haste and sits down in her chair, opening his clamshell and plunging it into the wall next to him, taking the charge from the same outlet that provided the juice from the girl's phone. And it's like nothing ever really happened there, right there in front of me. Wow. So, That's a problem. Um, Go ahead. No, I was going to say you go ahead. So say what you were going to say. Oh uh, well, I think uh, I, I never thought of this poem this way, but I think that kind of illustrates the idea of uh, the fact that uh, you know through the internet we are uh, in one way or another collected, connected to a to a human hive mind, um, and we've we've unknowingly been going down this path, and um, and you know it's, it's kind of like a frog in water uh, when when you start to boil it, uh, it's sitting there and you know it doesn't really know that it's being boiled alive. And I think that we we face kind of the same issue with AI and that it's it's pervasive. It's all around us. You know, every time we you know we sit in front of a, a computer screen to do our work, we are um, knowingly or unknowingly connecting ourselves to you know the cyber polygon. Uh, so, 
So, uh, so I guess that kind of connects cryptocurrency and, and artificial intelligence, right? Yep, totally. It sounds like we've become very much like Borg from the uh, old uh, science fiction television show and all of that. So it sounds like uh, that's where you're going is that we're almost becoming like the uh, great Borg uh, hive mind and all of that together in some form or fashion or another. One of the things, and I know we're wrapping up and everything, but uh, and this may be a long-winded answer, but it comes back to even some of your Russian roots. I know that the current person in office has talked about the fact that he feels the world should be divided into democracies and um, autocracies, I believe he said it was. So basically, dictators are democracies. Of course, now you would have some people argue that some of the democracies that we support are also dictatorships or autocracies, because there's some fine line and some gray line between, say, what some of the human rights violations that Saudi Arabia and other places may be doing, and we might want to put them in democracy. And some people might even argue that we could say the same thing about Israel. But do you think that we can divide the world that kind of um, narrow definitions? Because it sounds like he's almost about to create another version of a Cold War. But instead of it being the U.S. against Russia or the U.S. against China, it's going to be, or the axles, the axis against the allies, it's going to be democracy versus autocrats. So I think, I think Putin ultimately will leave power eventually. Uh, I think that uh, if you listen to um, some of his most recent interviews, he indicates that uh, he he wants to leave Russia in a in a competitive uh, position uh, amongst um, other world economies and other world governments. I think at the end of the day, all governments are the same in that they keep secrets from from people and rely on human the, the innate human quality of of, of trust um, and you know whether it's a one-headed monster uh, like Putin or a two-headed monster like the you know system of government that we have here in the United States whether you know you know you choose your choose your coke and Pepsi um, I think ultimately what people uh, need to realize is um, that a lot of times the government isn't out there um, to support the best interest of its uh, of its population. We're seeing that with um, uh, with COVID, with lockdowns, with mass vaccinations. Uh, again, you know, white power needs to get with black power and fight the power. Um, so you know, whether it's autocratic governments or governments that um, uh, that are supported by uh, oligarchies uh, or, you know, that are on the surface giving us the deception of choice of, you know, this Coke and Pepsi model. Um, you know, we, we need to get out of the left-right autocrat, autocratic democratic paradigm. We need to get in the up, up and down paradigm um, and get together on, on the community level to, to see how we can make our own lives better. Um, so, you know, it's kind of kind of funny hearing hearing that from somebody who works for government. I probably talk too much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're doing well, and I'm actually liking your viewpoints, and I agree with you. I would actually argue, and I've said that on this show and some of the other shows, 
that I've been part of, the same thing about our institutions. Because at the end of the day, in my mind, most religions have the same core principles, but then they get caught up in a certain way about themselves and think that their way is the only way. And in my mind, and I'm not saying that I know and probably, and I won't know until the end of the journey, the end of the tale, when I find the final chapter. But in my mind, I'm thinking that the man above or God, the God force, whatever you want to call it, and everything is actually um, letting the people come different ways into heaven's gates. But that's just my mindset because I find that a lot of the core beliefs are the same, whether you're a Buddhist, a Christian, a, you know, somebody that believes in Islam or whatever. So I think the core beliefs, you know, of loving one, of loving mankind, respecting your elders and all of that are very basic throughout all of the world's religions and even the non-religions, meaning like people that don't maybe not even believe at all or have agnostic beliefs. I think at the end of the day, they want some of the core human principles that we all want, you know, which is uh, fairness in life and just some of the core basic principles that are even put out in our Constitution, like, like the kind of stereotypical uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's just kind of my thought. Well, I, as we're getting out the door, and if you got any thoughts about what I just said, I'd love to hear that. But I would love for you as we're walking out the door before Dean kicks us out and gives us our uh, the shows and all of that, because it's usually about a five-minute grace period. So if you've got any quick thoughts that you'd like to share about what I just said, and if you've got a short point that you want to share on the way out and how folks can reach you, this is your time to do that. Well, I think my, my parting, parting thought would be uh, – uh, I agree and don't think be. Um, the easiest way to get a hold of me is to go to my website. It's just georgeartem.com. Uh, there you can find my Twitter profile and my LinkedIn page. Um, and if you're, if you're looking for a copy of Mania, you can find it on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And if you do have Dogecoin, you can go up on uh, dogedeals.com. Uh, with a Z, so it's DogeDealsWithAZ.com, and uh, I'll get you over if you if you if you buy a copy of Mania there, I'll get you over a, a signed author's copy. So, so thank you all so much for your time. No problem at all. So Glad to have you. And you have a uh, short poem that you want to say on your way out, maybe a minute or two poem before Dean comes on. Oh, a short poem on my way out. Yeah, let's let's do this one since we're 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 getting on the fringe here. This one is uh, a man on the moon, and the world turns and the sun goes up and down in the sky and it sets and we fall into darkness, covering the earth and the stars come out to play, with the moon falling toward it, cosmically conjoined in our ever quickening cycle. A man on the moon, smaller than a pin, not a man, not even an ant takes a time-lapse photograph of his revolving Mother Earth and brings it home with him on 64 kilobytes and 43 kilohertz and lots of rocket fuel in Kubrick's empty Hollywood set. And I sit in my empty Skid Row halfway home apartment and write on 5 billion kilobytes and 2 million kilohertz and no rocket fuel, an ant one day hoping to take us to the moon and back. 
Wow, what a deep poem. Hey, Dane, you want to uh, give us your thoughts about that as well as the other shows that we've got and, of course, the various other ways that he can even listen to the replay and all of that. And, by the way, Dane, don't you think that we handled that very masterfully? Notice how he came in and thought that he was going to be in enemy territory, and we just maintained a full hour-and-a-half-long conversation. So he thought he was in enemy territory and found out that it wasn't as bad as he thought it was going to be. No, nah, we we you know we leave that intimate territory stuff for somebody else's show, man. It takes too much energy to go and and, and argue. Hey, I don't argue in my house, so you know I'm not arguing outside of it. <laughs> but we we definitely we definitely thank you for for spending time with us this evening, man, and and taking out time out of your schedule to to be with us. So we greatly appreciate that. Um, we definitely do. All right. All right, John. Well, thank, thank you so much. No Most problem. welcome, sir. Most welcome. Hey, y'all, it's Straight Talk with Dana Mark, Monday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget to catch the replay tomorrow afternoon and Wednesday afternoon on the Skyhawk Radio Network at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you missed those, we do have replays. You can catch us on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, CastBox, Podfollow, Deezer, GeoSaving, and right here on Blog Talk Radio, where we are part of the Level Podcast Network, and you can catch other great shows such as The Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. The Chef Gang Radio Show, Funk from the Front Seat, Funk Music with Zach, Learning Unwrapped, Let's K-12 Better, Marketing with Rush, a.k.a. Hashtag Rush Selfie, Mona Shake and the Minority Report, Mulling Music and Memories with Mark Lee, The Online Dinner Party with Mark Lee, The Plan of Good Seed Podcast, The Reinvention Road Trip, She's on Call, the Just Podcast, The Mark Lee Show, The Spinet Social Hour, Virginia Interfaith Live, WNC Original Music, and of course, Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. Like I always say, when you walk outside your front door, showtime in the world is your stage. Just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal. With that being said, it's Six Man Dean Geronimo. Have an outstanding week. we see y'all in seven days. That's right, seven days, Dean, and I'm going to go back to listening to uh, the Potted uh, Net, where I find some of these great guests, as well as some of their publicists. I know that George came through a publicist, and so, of course, jumping on Clubhouse and some of these other social apps so that I can sit there and recruit some guests. And, of course, I know you're doing the same up there in your neck of the woods. So we're just trying to find amazing guests and keep these engaging conversations going. So I have no idea who the guest is next week, but I'm sure I'll find somebody intriguing and interesting for us by that time. So just keep your ears open. 
Movement. And if you've got some things that you want to let us know about, you can reach out to me at bluesradio at gmail.com. That's bluesradio at gmail.com. So maybe you've got a story that you want to share, or maybe you know somebody that needs to be sharing their stories as well. And, of course, if you want to give support to us as well, you can send a, a cash app to Mark Lee 1962. Mark Lee 1962 with the dollar sign, because that's how cash app works. So, Dana, as we're heading out the door, you want to let folks know how they can reach you, and if you've got any PayPal or Cash App as well, because, you know, we got to get make sure that we're getting a little bit of some revenue. <laughs> and, you know, I'm also going to say that if anybody's listening and y'all been digging what we've been doing for these years, we are open to having sponsorship. So just keep that in mind as well. So you can reach me or you can reach Dean. And, Dean, how can they reach you? <laughs> oh, they, they can reach me at 807media@gmail.com. Um, that's the number, 807media at gmail.com. And um, I, I guess you can send Venmo at D-E-A-N-G-1-3. So Dean G-13, you can send it by Venmo. I don't have a cash out to kick me out. So it is what it is. We hope to see y'all in seven days. Man, stay out of the heat and have a go. That's right. And we'll catch you later. Peace. Peace. Hey, Tom, I'm heading to Walmart because you know what season it is. Oh, is it pumpkin spice season? Uh, no, it's flu season, and Walmart gets flu shots. Yes, flu season is here, and we've got your back with flu shots where you already shop. Our expert pharmacy team administers each flu shot and can answer your vaccine questions. Stay safe this flu season. Stop by your local Walmart pharmacy and get your flu shot today. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com.